thinkers and creators and innovators. You can't only change one part of the system, you've got to bring the entire system along. Messy, organic, emerging, unpredictable. The leadership styles, people who know their business and can see opportunities. Exploring and harnessing emerging technology for the land force is a story of successful failure and immense triumph. Over this series, I'll be speaking to the movers and shakers who are leading into the future with innovative approaches and groundbreaking technologies. We'll explore diverse topics like how artificial intelligence can support and protect the lives of our soldiers, or how vehicles and platform electrification can provide an edge. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Colonel Jennifer Harris, who is regarded as one of Army's agents of change. Jen has led a diverse career. She is currently working in Army's Land Capability Division and has held previous roles in the Total Workforce System, as well as a project management position at Questacon. One common thread between these roles is the demand for change. I'm also joined by Dr. Beck Jackson. In her work as a psychologist and leadership development practitioner, Beck has successfully coached hundreds of leaders in the military, government and public space to enhance and develop their capacity, commitment and character to lead their teams and organisations into the future. Our conversation delves into the challenges of change, sharing insights of what good leadership looks like whether change management is really that important and how optimism may be more valuable to an organization than we realize. Beck and Jen, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for being here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start with you, Jen. There's a lot of people out there peddling change management. What does that actually mean, though, from your perspective? So I think it's really interestingly coming out of the Chief of Army Symposium. We find ourselves, particularly in Army, in fact, we find ourselves as a nation in an amazing time where the only constant is change. And to cope with that, I think people have wrapped this concept of change management around it. It's a survival mechanism. It's how, it's how people are trying to understand how you take a complex system from one space to another, um, and I'm not sure it's serving us well. Yeah, look, I've got some pretty strong views about change management. <laughs> yep. um, so I guess being a psychologist, I always look at it through the lens of how humans' brains work and then how we interact when we all get together. Um, and when I first uh, was kind of approached to start teaching, because I've been working in that kind of coaching leadership space, Beck, can you teach a module at the War College on change leadership? And or in fact, I think it was change management was the terminology originally. And mm. I really struggled with the idea that change was something that you could quantify and that you could put structures and processes in place to try and wrap some kind of control around it. Um, to me, change is a much more messy, organic, emerging, unpredictable, um, Almost un, you know, learning along the way as you go. Absolutely, and, and you can't quantify it. So the, the idea that we could somehow then manage that as human beings was a really you know, foreign kind of yeah, idea. Mm. Were you going to say, Jen? And I think one of the challenges is we risk telling our people that they don't have the skills 
we risk having to export and bring in uh, change management experts when our people have the skills, the curiosity and the creativity to actually be part of this very dynamic, organic, messy system. And instead, they're stepping back and, and asking for an expert to come and help them with them. And I think, I think that's really challenging at all organisations who, whose people who are actually the best place, who are most intimate to what they do, to actually navigate, improve and adapt, uh, to actually be part of a system that is transforming because they think they have to step back and someone has to come in and give them these new skills or give them new concepts of leadership. I think our team have the skills. It's how we help, help them become comfortable in this adaptive, continuously improving, continuously moving environment. Mm. Yeah, and I think my approach kind of um, complements that in that um, as the kind of the expert that was being invited in, my uh, immediate reaction was, I feel like the contribution that I can make is actually around coaching and facilitating how people cope within it. So yeah. looking at what are these components of change, so things like uncertainty, things like um, being able to adapt, being able to be um, cognitively flexible, um, acceptance of, you know, when the change is something that you want to resist or that you fear, um, how do you deal with stress? So it's kind of all of those human factors that are involved within people's response to change, absolutely. That's where we can provide those skills in allowing people to um, to deal with it. And then from a leadership perspective, how do we, pe how do we teach people to steward and facilitate um, what needs to occur within their teams and their groups to allow the change to emerge and then to facilitate all those human emotions. So, And, and taking those words, fear and resistance, Jen, can you recall the time when you were trying to enact change <laughs> and you encountered roadblocks and realised that the rest of the team weren't on the same journey? And there's big smiles on both faces yeah. here. I'm sure that's happened eight million times. <laughs> <laughs> Look, absolutely, and I think the... Uh, the, the um, the situation that comes to mind was one where Beck was actually coming as someone who can help facilitate a team moving through change and helped, helped us all see ourselves within the change, understand how we were reacting to that change, and instead of emotions becoming adversarial, and, and this is where the real richness of bringing in experts like Beck comes in, is she, she can help you get back in touch with the skills you have, mm. but more importantly, confront the feelings around that. Uh, Army's not an organisation that's known for being really comfortable with feelings. You know, we're very stoic. We, are, we focus on being resilient, and I think it doesn't serve us well in this environment where everything's moving. The example I will say, uh, and Beck smiling, is uh, my previous role, we, Army, were confronting this same future skilling challenge that the rest of the nation is. How do we recruit great talent? How do we retain the talent we have? We were all feeling that the system wasn't working, it wasn't, it wasn't optimised, it was created for a different time. I came into the really the internal movement, the internal mechanism of that people system from being out there commanding soldiers um, and was confronted with a system that still had to continue and people who had built and had 
um, grown up in that system, making the machine work. I, I was on the outside of that machine. I was taking great people they'd recruited, people that had been trained and employing them in an army organisation, but they were really the internal mechanics. I think the challenge for me is out in big army, you can take a team, you can motivate them, we all have a direction. Often we can see why we need to change and you can motivate it through that, but I was confronted by having to help a system and the people who are actually within the machinery of that and had built it and were invested in it, moving to a new state. And the big thing that Beck actually was able to help me understand was one step back from the personal investment where I felt <laughs> like everyone was attacking me, mm. like I could mm. not feel more alone, mm. but more importantly, understand their journey. And I think this is one of the real challenges with adaption and change is that people are so invested in the old system um, the system still has to run. We still have to recruit. We still have to change. It's so enormous. People almost want someone to map it out and then show us why we should change first. But most importantly, there are different ways people cope with change. You still need those people in the original system because it still has to run. Of course. They're still the custodians. And instead of looking at them like the iron colonels or the concrete warrant officers <laughs> um, that are the holding us back, they're a custodian. That's the way they see themselves. Yep. You then have to make sure you're protecting those pockets of innovation, those people that are starting to try new things, to small scale, fail fast, learn and be agile. And that's tough for a big organisation because mm. they just want, you know, we, we, it would be great if someone could give us an instruction manual, like point to where we have to do and we just change that and everything is fine, but we, it's we, not. Which, which is very army, isn't it? <laughs> so, and it? But it's organic. Yeah. So you've got to protect those. And then as new systems emerge, you need people that can help transition your custodians of the old system into the new space. And it was when Beck came in and explained that Bacana two loops models of change that I realised that to facilitate and, and lead an organisation through change, not manage it, but mm. lead them through change, you've got to acknowledge how everyone responds. Um, it's so yeah. fascinating to me to hear, Jen, now, you know, this was sort of 12, 18 months ago that we had that conversation um, and we sort of went through some of that theory and it's uh, the thing that I love is that um, it reinforces to me that if you, as that outside kind of, you know, subject matter expert, don't go in with a ready-made solution for the person that you're working with and say, hey, here are a few different ideas, here's a few different models, here's a little bit of theory, talk to me about how you see that. Does it land with you? Does it kind of fit with your experience? Does it fit with your thinking? And the people that you're working with will then pick up the bits that they like, that resonates with them. Um, so I, I sort of feel like that was a, you know, it was so fascinating to hear you now having processed that and worked with it to sort of reflect it back to me. But the other thing is that um, I guess my role is very much around we assume everybody's going to have the same response to change. Everyone's going to fear it. Like, we're very good at generalising. Everyone's going to fear it. Everyone's going to hate it. And therefore, we go in and we start front-loading it with all of this fear-ready kind of response. We're on the defensive. Whereas if you go in and you talk to people and you meet them where they're at, some people will be really excited. 
because the change represents for them improvement. Other people will be fearful or uncertain because the change represents a threat to the status quo or what they're used to. Other people will be curious. Other people will be oblivious or other people will be ambivalent. You know, you can have all these ranging responses. And if you don't make space, firstly, for people to voice that, you don't know who's in the room and you don't know how they're going to respond. And then you can open up that conversation for them. And then as Jen's just sort of identified, within the change process, as it emerges and unfolds, there's lots of different various roles that people can play. And if you understand where they're at and what their mindsets are and what their skills and experience and expertise are, then you can help to guide them into the parts of the change that's going to suit them rather than forcing people mm. to respond in a way which is counterintuitive or, you know, it, it, it's asking too much of them. Yeah. It's yeah. almost like that idea of the curse of knowledge, isn't it? Where Absolutely. you have that beautiful changing, you know, <laughs> but you, you don't know what yeah. other people are yeah. thinking. No, not yeah. at all. Not Why at can't all. they see it? <laughs> Surely they can see. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's really important that um, if you are leading a team that is um, driving forward on a transformation, is everyone has to be part of that. Mm. And there are so many different interlocutors um, it, it's such a it's such a great opportunity. It's so energising to be part of an organisation that is moving towards a transformation. Um, we're a people centric institution. You know, the army is all about our people. It's about teams of teams, and recognising that everyone has a role, but also taking it that one step further and realising the emotion that comes through that is so important and and it was a, a super aha moment when mm-hmm. Beck kind of helped us all see how we were actually navigating this as a leadership team and then how we could have a better conversation about how people were feeling and there, then pivot them into the roles that would actually enable this very organic, messy transformation that is still continuing, yeah. that still has to adapt and still and has to I change. And also I think if you're, the, if you're the point, the initiating point of whatever this change is that we're trying to... We're talking about planned sort of organisational change or response to Absolutely. organisational pressure as opposed to the wider definition of change. But if you're the point of initiation of whatever this change is that you're trying to um, promote or trying to facilitate or steward, um, it's quite arrogant if you're in the position of, I have, as you said, I've seen the light, I have the curse of knowledge, I know how this is going to play out. Mm. And you're not mindful and open to the fact that as the process unfolds and people are conversing and sharing you know their ideas and their thoughts and their emotions about it that other alternatives are going to emerge and you need to be open to that rather than just continually forcing you know down down the sort of the path that you have pre pre-planned yes, absolutely whether you know and that's the bit that people hate about change they mm. don't what they don't want is they don't want um, what we would call nugatory change, so change where you go through this whole process and yet and you make a one mil shift and you think, well, we've just... Like, the benefit is not worth the, the cost that we've just... No, that's right. Yep. Juice is not worth the squeeze. Um, or they don't like um, kind of change, which is called change, but it's really just, you know, I call it lipstick on a, on a bulldog or ineffectual change. Mm. So, you know, those, those kinds of changes where um, it's called change but it's not 
it's not adapting anything. That's it's it. not improving anything. So I think this um, move towards continual improvement and seeing things in a cyclic fashion of improvement rather than change which kind of insinuates a start and a finish. Humans place a great deal of importance on their reputation and that is certainly the case within Army. How, Jen, do you lead change but keep professional and personal reputation intact? Wow, that's a... That's a cracker. That's I'm a glad cracker. that one went to that, you. Thanks. thanks. <laughs> oh, no, I'm coming over to you today. Okay, all right. Uh, that's a cracker. What I, what I think we're seeing, um, what we're seeing now and the reality of our strategic circumstances is that continuously adapting system, that continuously improving system, it's, it's not about big whole-scale transformation Formations and people are actually really fatigued by this. Let's create a task force. Let's bring an external team in to show us mm. uh, where we need to move to. Um, it's it's actually about a continuously adapting system, and I think there is a real opportunity right now for Army to think about the behaviours, the leadership styles, the people they want to lead that continuously adapting system. The concept of reputation and the concept of being seen as professional is about understanding that our people are central to what we do. It always has to come back to the team and results in terms of achieving a change and then an uptake in performance will speak to themselves. I'm not convinced that leading through a messy, adaptive, agile system where you're pivoting, where you're trying something and failing, detracts from a person's reputation. What detracts from a person's reputation is where teams don't want to work with them anymore. As a team of teams, Army requires leaders that are true servant leaders. They get in there and they're part of the process. We have such an amazing generation of people coming through who are not just going to stand there and be told what to do. They want to be part. They want to be curious. They want to be part of the solution. They want to be there to develop it. Um, good leaders in this type of organic, continually changing system have great reputations because people want to be part of their teams again. And I think there's a real opportunity here not to be the big strapping person up front that's leading, that is always stoic. It's about authenticity. It's about bringing a team along and the results will come and that's where your reputation has to sit in my mind. I have great teams of people who work with me. I now understand better as a leader, how to really cultivate the journeys of all those teams. I hope that's my reputation. Yeah. Um, and I hope that's why people want to come and work with me in the future. And I think um, Army's in that space now. Mm. It's, yeah. ready to, it's ready to reward those behaviours, not mm. a template. And I think, you know, I, when I talk with people um, in that kind of coaching space or education space around their reputation, we sort of take it one step remove from that and we think about their brand and when I talk about their brand it's not kind of how they advertise themselves on LinkedIn or what sort of profile photo they have. Mm. Um, thank, thank God for that. It's yeah. more about, you know, I talk about your brand as being how those around you, that team of teams or those who um, are in your 
sphere and in your ecosystem experience you. So it is your reputation because it's what they know of you and it's what they've heard about you. But it's also if you were out of the room and, you know, if Jen was outside and you said to me, oh, can you describe Jen to me? It's the words that I use about what it's like to be in her presence, Mm -hmm. what it's like to work with her, um, how she makes me feel. Um, And, you know, that's kind of, that's your brand. So it's all of that. And then that sits slightly to one side and then you have your own identity, which is how you see yourself. And, you know, I think both sides of those coin, that coin is really important for people to consider because the brand is how others experience you. Your identity is how you experience yourself. And you need to understand both of those things because um, both of them are going to impact your effectiveness as a leader. So, Vic, as your work as a psychologist, you talk about commitment to character mm-hmm. and you're sort of leaning in on that a little bit there. When leading change management, that commitment to character, it's going to be tested. So how do you best manage that as a person? It's continually working on your self-awareness. So, um, you know, if we just pick up on the example that I just used then, um, you know, if I'm self-aware, then I'm going to be monitoring are there gaps between that brand and identity? So, you know, and if I'm mindful that there might be some gaps and I see myself slightly different to how others see me, then it's reflecting on that and going, do I want to change or try and influence the brand, which is how others are experiencing me, mm. or do I need to somehow alter the impression that I have of myself because that's actually inaccurate, um, or is it somewhere in the middle of all of that? And I think, so self-awareness is really important. I think that deep level reflection about meaning and purpose, because I think, you know, that's a huge part of your character is sort of those big existential questions around why am I here? Who am I? You know, if I strip everything else away, what's the most important thing to me? You know, whether you want to call that values, whether you want to call it beliefs, whether you want to call it core beliefs, you know, people have lots of different sort of terminology. But sure the sort of your essence, you know, what's Mm. your kind of essence as a person. Um, And then I think having the mindfulness about where in the future, how do I want people to recall and remember um, their experience of me? So, you know, I, I did an exercise very early on in my psych training where um, it was, it's called the funeral or the eulogy exercise. I, I was just going to say that's exactly <laughs> yeah. how Some how people would... don't like it. They find no. it very morbid. They don't want to think about what others are going to say yeah. about how, them. How would and someone I, speak about you at a eulogy? I, I know. And some people will say, oh, I don't want to do that exercise. That's very morbid. I don't want to think about my own death. Mm. And, and I go, okay, we'll have some other conversations that probably need to occur. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, other people will be like, uh, I don't care. You know, and that's an interesting response. I don't care what people say. Mm. I'll be I'll be dead and buried. I, I don't yeah. mind what others say. Um, and then for others, I'll flip the question and say, okay, well, imagine it's your 90th birthday and your children, your grandchildren and your loved ones are getting up and they're speaking about you. Um, you know, it's a great exercise to do to kind of get in touch with, you know, your character and what's kind of important. But yes. I, think, um, I think there's absolutely a commitment to those things, self-awareness, um, continual kind of learning and growth. You know, accepting the fact that the person that I'm going to be tomorrow or next week or in a month or, you know, in a year can can be very different to the person that I am today and that that's okay. Yep. doesn't mean I'm 
inauthentic. It just means that I'm growing and learning and changing, which is our, you know, sort of theme today. But we change just as much as the environment of changes around us. So mm. um, I think, you know, commitment to both of those things is really important. Yeah, so words of trust and mistrust. Are these the reasons people fear or struggle with change? Uh, I think there's a lot of you know there's a lot of reasons why we sort of fear. So if we think about changes being uncertain, human our human brain is not sort of it hasn't evolved to cope with too much unknown and uncertainty, um, and so we look to uh, each other because humans are you know we're an interconnected species. We like to be with other humans, and so if you look around you, and you are reaching out to the other humans in your environment to deal within that uncertainty, you need to be able to trust them. And if for whatever reason, uh, you know, you're getting, you're getting a vibe or you're getting uh, experience which is counter to that, which is proving that, oh, perhaps this person's not being 100%, uh, you know, transparent or yep. they're not being accountable or they're being inauthentic or they're being disingenuous or they're, you know, any of those things and you mistrust them, well, you know, you, we, that compounds that feeling of fear and stress because I'm in this and you're in this with me, but I don't actually know whether or not I can rely on you. And that, you know, that then starts that spiral. I think that is really unhealthy. And I think it also comes back to understanding um, how people are seeing themselves in that change process, coming back to acknowledging uh, those that aren't as and commitment is the wrong word it's about those that don't see themselves or see uh, they're those in those custodian roles uh, making sure that you're not going back to that well you're not you're not with me on this change uh, it, understanding how people are approaching where they're at understanding their where they've come from and being able to help bridge that gap because feelings and relationships are two-way. Being mm. able to uh, explore a potential gap when it comes mm. to trust, being able to explore when we're not on the same page and, we're, and we hope we're moving in the same direction, but it actually looks like we're moving in the opposite direction, yeah. is, really, is really tough. And exploring the feelings and the emotions around it, and I think for me that's where change is so confronting, particularly for an army, because it's right deep in the messy feelings. We are doing feelings today and we're doing emotions and we've got to actually get through that. I interviewed a person within army over the last couple of days at the Chief of Army Symposium and I asked this person, are you proud of what you've achieved? And they stopped and they didn't know how to answer it. And they said, we don't use the word proud in army. And I thought to myself, you should be using the word proud. Yeah, There's wow. a lot to be proud of. And that sort of leans into what you're saying as well. It really touches me to think that people can't identify with that mm. sort of language. I mean, we should mm. be proud to come to work every day, to achieve everything we yeah. do. You know, we've all had those days mm. where you kind of sit back and go, what exactly? did I achieve today? Mm. When you've got a mound of an emails and everything's going wrong, we should be proud. It should be in our nomenclature. But it's interesting also to understand how the next generation views language that we might be quite comfortable with. Mm. When we talk about resilience, when we talk about being proud, sometimes that can feel old and stuffy and not dynamic and in time. It's also understanding that intergenerational piece and how 
how they describe themselves versus how we describe yep. ourselves, it can be quite different. They've probably got another word for proud. I'm not sure what other word you I know, use. I'm just sitting here I'm grappling a, yeah. with the... Um, well, how can someone not feel proud <coughs> yeah, of, what yeah, yeah. They, of who they are? Yeah. 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 Those, word, think, those words will be on TikTok if yeah, you just yeah, go there. And I expect or I'm wondering, I'm curious, whether for that person... Um, Pride was somehow sort of conflated with that feeling of um, like a, almost like an arrogance yeah. or a, it's about me, yeah, like a yeah, self-importance, yeah. yes. you know. Yeah. Um, and absolutely when I, um, you know, am, am engaging with, you know, all of the, the uh, various different, you know, rank levels or generations within ARMY, whenever the conversation moves towards self over team or self over yeah. other or self over my community, people feel really uncomfortable mm. um, because I think, uh, you know, it is, as we said before, you know, it's it's human instinct to be kind of interconnected and to reach out to each other within a people-centric organisation system like an army, um, there is very much that sense that uh, we are all interconnected and a part of a team. So people will often say, oh, well, I don't... It's the same as when I ask people about legacy. Like, I've learned not to ask that question. If I say, hey, Jen, what's your leadership uh, legacy? Yeah. People feel very uncomfortable and they say, well, I, I don't want to leave a legacy. It's not about me. Um, and often it will be a reimagining of the question or a rephrasing of the question around, I would hope that when I leave at the end of my career, um, you know, I leave behind an organisation that is improved, that yeah, is better absolutely. than it was when I, you know, and that I haven't done anything to damage that. It's almost yeah. like, a, yes. you know, that's kind of the, you know, the language. Yeah. But I think, I think people can feel they're happy to talk about how pleased or how proud they are of their team mm -hmm. and what their team has yeah. achieved. It's rare, I think, that people feel comfortable standing up and taking pride in individual you know, or want yep. to be recognised uh, individually or really called out individually. A word of warning for you, Jen. I'm going to use the word or terms change agent right here. <laughs> <laughs> like secret agent. Like yeah. secret agent. Yeah. Plenty of people will re yeah. regard you as a change agent. What's been the response to your approach? <laughs> we spoke about the response before. It hasn't been always been quite positive. <laughs> um, look, I... The response to my approach is an interesting question because I think um, I'm adapting every day, I'm reflecting, and I've been through some tough change, transformation situations. I, I enjoy being part of a continuously improving system. I enjoy uh, opportunities to help the system improve. I love the agility, the energy that comes from working with people who are tired of the way we are doing things now and want to continually improve. I think my current role um, is fascinating as a chief of staff because I own everything but I own nothing at the same time. I have some amazing teams that are really focused on those key capabilities that they're custodians of and they're both maintaining current capability and transforming into the future. Um, the concept of a change agent, that there's one person that's kind of sitting at the centre <laughs> that is actually going to, you know, take us all along. I, I can, I'm, I'm somewhat confronted by that, yeah. but I'd love... Um, I like to think that um, 
if I'm recognised as a change agent, it's someone who is positively engaging with the messiness uh, and is willing to help other people uh, understand how they can com improve in their sphere of influence. Uh, as, hmm. as it sounds, I struggle with it. <laughs> yeah. the, the concept that I'm somehow in the, in the centre or somehow driving all of this, uh, I would like to think that I'm seen as a change agent because I will listen to people, I will help people on a continuously improving journey uh, and that I won't just sit and watch something that could be better. I think it's really fascinating when you look at, you know, um, labels that we put on things. So, um, you know, whether you want to call it a change agent, whether yeah. you want to call it a change champion, whether yeah. you want to call yeah. it a... An ambassador. So, yeah. An ambassador, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, we can give it whatever label we want. I think what we have to be really mindful and careful of is that if we hold up our divergent thinkers or our disruptive, you know, leaders and things go well, they're received well, the organisation can see what they're doing, celebrate success, we will give them the title of ambassador or change agent or change champion and get the pom-poms out and rah, rah, rah and, you know, uh, celebrate them. When it goes wrong, we have a different reaction organisationally mm -hmm. and within the public and those people then end up as, you know, for want of a better word, a scapegoat. And we call them, a, you know, a, some, some other derogatory term for being somebody who's come in and destroyed everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we need to be really, we re really need to be mindful of the risk, the personal risk that people assume or take on when they are seen as being someone who can question the status quo, who can push back and ask those tricky questions, who might think a bit differently or who might be um, ones who will hold uh, the organisation to account or who will voice a strong and divergent thought. Um, we need to be really careful that one, we're articulating to them what that risk is, you know, um, and two, that we give them an opportunity to actually choose whether or not they want to take that path. Do you want to be a change agent? Do you want to be a change ambassador or a change champion? Um, what, and and re be really transparent with them about how we are going to support you and what we are going to wrap around you and put in place if this goes well or if this doesn't go well. Um, and I think, I don't think we've really thought that through. And we, uh, as an army, have a real focus on adaption, innovation, mobilising change, but that requires disruptors. It requires people who think differently, deep experts with curiosity and creativity, people who know their business and can see opportunities for change. The thought that we can parachute someone in and expect a whole organic, messy system of systems to change is really confronting. And I, and I was just listening to Beck talk and, and I couldn't agree more. I think we have to uh, be really cognizant where we put someone in because they've achieved change before. So we're gonna actually, we're just gonna parachute you in the middle and you will fix this. You know, it's this context well, yeah, of yeah, and fixing. then you get this, you know, back to the reputation. Yeah. You get a reputation as being a fixer. And so, you know, not only are we asking a lot of the person, you know, time one, 
Um, and and if they're successful, and you know, like I said before, we have a ticker tape parade, and we, yeah. you know, like the neon signs come out, and woohoo, you're a change, <laughs> you are now a change champion. Yes. Um, there's no time to sort of uh, r- recover from the personal cost that it has had, and and you then get, par- as you said, you get moved into time two to do it all again, and then time three to do it all again. And I think the other thing is if we skill a wider group of people in those capacities or those skill sets or those um, aptitudes that it takes to do that role, we're not relying on a small few and burning them out. And I think that's the key thing is uh, it's the entire team that needs skills to both see themselves, to recognise how they're responding to change uh, and how the team actually navigates and moves the system because you can't only change one part of the system, you've got to bring the entire system along and I think terms like change agent, risk, people stepping back and it's, well, I'm not, I'm not doing this. You want the whole team to be able to recognise their part and have the skills to not only cope with their own transition through the change, but to be looking for points of continuous improvement, to mm. be looking for points of adaption. Uh, success is actually a continually adapting system where we don't have to set up a task force five years from now and do another change. You've actually built the DNA into the system and you build the DNA by making sure everyone is comfortable to be in that organic, messy environment. Way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not just create excitement. So, Jen, it's fair to say that Army has been told to change the most out of the defence strategic review. There's an increased demand for new and innovative approaches to capability, a pivot to littoral and long-range weapons, and that will ultimately change the way that Army trains and fights as well. So how does Army maintain momentum and then change with purpose at the same time? In a crisis... Uh, In an operational setting, we are very good at adapting. We are very good at introducing new ways of thinking because we have a pursuit of operational advantage. We have been given that mandate, that Mm. opportunity by the Defence Strategic Review. I'm not sure that Army feels like it's been directed most, but we're bringing in nuclear submarines. I mean, that's a massive change for our Navy. I think the whole Defence Force has been given a mandate for change. Army, to think that Army wasn't already on a journey, we've come out of operations in the Middle East, we were postured and set up to be able to do that. We are now faced by strategic circumstances, the reality of our region that requires us to reposture and optimise for the reality of that strategic circumstances. The DSR has been a catalyst Mm. that actually brings together specific direction and drives form. How do we maintain momentum? We're actually doing it. We haven't waited for a task force to come in and tell us how to change the One Defence capability system. We are pathfinding now. We are driving through a system of committees and processes very quickly to get us to a point where we can actually bring these capabilities in far sooner, far earlier than the previous system was able to do. We're pathfinding. And I think that brings both energy, optimism, a little bit of, oh, are we seeing everything? And what we're exposing is in the absence of being able to see a very complex system, to bring all the data together, understand the interdependencies, We've put layers and layers of checklists and 
reports, you know, 130 documents to actually encapsulate a decision that actually seems quite logical. Mm. So it's exposing those parts of the system that we've weighed ourselves down. And the way we're getting around it is to not stand back and just change the system and this is the new template of documents and this is where we go through. We're actually pathfinding. And I think the risk we have is once we've bought in those new capabilities and once we're in, but the, we go back, we have to use this opportunity to actually be a more agile system, to use the pathfinders as examples of how the system should be because it allows us to do it when we're not in an operational setting. Mm. You know, mm. There's a reality of our strategic circumstances that is driving this timeline, but we're not in an operational setting. So it's uh, for me, it's a super opportunity. It's going to drive forward at pace something that would potentially take a lot longer. And let's capitalise on that. But that's the entire Defence Force. We're not the only ones doing this. Of course. But what I love is Army's pathfinding for everybody. And that's really exciting. We come to the end of our conversation and I believe what I'm going to put to you could be its own podcast. In fact, it could be its own podcast series, I would imagine. But uh, we have a few minutes just to unpack it, let it breathe a little bit. So to the both of you, hypothetically, if you could start Army afresh tomorrow, what would you sustain? What would you keep? And what would you do differently? You're right, it could be a whole podcast. Yeah, that like a whole a series, whole right? Podcast in itself. I come back to the people right at the centre of everything we do. That's what you keep. You keep people uh, who, are, who have mission, who have purpose, who want to serve a cause higher than themselves. And, and that, that transcends generations. Yep. We see today people who come into the army uh, have a motivation, they want they want a purpose, they want to serve a cause higher than themselves. They have curiosity, they are creative. The one key thing I would change is cultivate that curiosity and creativity all the way through. A big thing for me is hierarchies, chains of commands are absolutely necessary. Um, They provide order, they provide stability. Mm. But being able to cultivate the matrix across organisational boundaries to be able to motivate and capitalise on that curiosity and creativity, I think sometimes people feel constrained by structures and that those very stable org- organisational structures, the one thing I'd love to see is how do you mobilise the matrix across the system to enhance that creativity? We are a great institution. We are a great teams of teams. There is so much to learn. But I think if you mobilise a matrix of people and be able to connect creativity and curiosity you can actually drive forward that continually adapting system. Sometimes that search for hierarchical stability actually leaves us in a space where we just put layers and layers and layers over the top. That's the one thing I would love to be able to change Mm. is actually how do you mobilise the matrix and how do you really make our institution efficient and cultivate that creativity and curiosity that we all start with yeah yeah I think um such a 
it's such a uh, a massive question, it's but my question. it's a big question. Yeah. But I think my my thinking automatically goes to I would learn from living systems, and I would say we have an existing army, we have an existing defence force. Um, I think the move towards an integrated force is yep. absolutely the right direction. So I would have that happening as the existing system, but then I would be focusing some resource on on building I don't know what this is an entity I don't want to call it a like a center of excellence or a think <laughs> a task tank force. or a task force or anything else. a thing there would be a thing off yep. to the side roll out the label maker that's it yeah we'll work out what it's called yeah. later but there would be an entity off to the side mm. um, and I would start within that um, looking at little communities of practice focused yeah. on specific things. So I'd have one that would be doing the systems design piece, looking at, I think it's a futures entity, so it's sort of looking into the future. When we say future, I don't mean like 2050 or 2100. I'm thinking like, you know, hundreds of years mm. into the future because mm. I think part of the organisation needs of this, you know, new model needs to be thinking about that. And then, uh, you know, I'd have all of my, I would have, thinkers and creators and innovators from a whole range of different places, academia, um, people who we would never see in the military, um, you know, artists, like bring all those skills together and go, okay, we're going to have one community of practice that's focused on sort of system design. I would have another one which would be focused on futures and looking at things like tech and AI and robotics and how is that going to shape the future environment. I'd have another one looking at human optimization and the kind of the bits that I'm interested in, which is how are the humans going to, you know, contribute help in this kind of emerging world? I'd have a diplomacy, peacekeeping, peace building, alliance building, you know, what does the world look like? What could the world look like without the need for kinetic conflict? And I think that's a very different... So I would be, you know, that's where my thinking goes to, yeah. that if we were going to have that world... If that's what we can, if that's what we can picture, and we want to start moving towards that, well, we need the people who are excellent relationship builders. We need the networkers. We need the people who are great at diplomacy. We need the people who are focused on climate and environment. How are we going to collaborate more? So then, integrated actually goes beyond the shores of Australia, and it goes into our region, and ultimately, it should be global. Like if we had global integration yeah like imagine what that would be like <laughs> and it sounds you know and I don't I, and yep. I don't mean it to sound Pollyanna but I think if we um, are optimistic about what our you know I'm a mum I've got four kids I think about you know what is it going what is the world going to look like for my great 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 grandchildren mm. um, and you know I would I would hope that it's going to be more like the world without kinetic conflict uh, and and therefore, if we're thinking about how do we redesign a defence force, maybe it's maybe it's a different kind of entity. Yeah, Rebecca Jackson, Colonel Jen Harris, that is a beautiful way to finish our conversation. That has been inspiring. Thank you so <laughs> much for joining us. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks for, for having, having us. us.